across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Who could have guessed so much news could be produced in such a short space of time? Since I was in here last, we've had the EU doing a complete climb down from their position against the AstraZeneca vaccine and they're now giving it out in Italy and France again. Former Brexit Minister David Davis rocked the House of Commons last night when he came out and used parliamentary privilege to blow the lid off the Nicola Sturgeon SNP cover-up in Scotland. Prince Philip came out of hospital to the news that his grandson Hazard had spilled the beans to a US TV show about a private phone call he had from his brother via a friend of Meghan's. And as if that wasn't enough, ex-EastEnders star Patsy Palmer stormed off an interview with Good Morning Britain when they called her an ex-addict, proving that without Piers Morgan, they simply cannot do sassy and edgy tabloid television. We'll be talking about that uh, coming up. 03444991000. Baroness Kate Hoey kicks us off this morning with her take on the day's events. Has Boris Johnson gone soft on China? Will the EU now back down on Northern Ireland? And what happens next in the Alex Salmon case. We'll also be talking to Neil Oliver about that as he joins us with news that his appearances on this very show have turned him into something of a cult hero. He's getting letters from all over the place praising his common sense views. Letters addressed to that bloke in Scotland with long hair, the King of Scotland, Stirling, Scotland, and they're all getting to his house. Amazing. 0344-499-1000. We'll also be talking about the scourge of e-scooters. And as ever, of course, we want to hear from you. There's lots to talk about. What are you hearing? What are you doing? And what are you being told by your schools, your employers, uh, and even your friends? It's Prime Minister's questions, of course, as well. So we'll be bringing you Boris V. Keir in the company of Charlotte Ivers, Talk Radio's political correspondent, in our own inimitable style. And it's St. Patrick's Day, too. So I might even have a little celebration to do with that at some point. Maybe a pint of Guinness. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station in the world. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. And it's now time to say a very good morning to Baroness Hoey of Lyle Hill and Rathlin, non-affiliated peer, of course, in the House of Lords. A very happy St. Patrick's Day to you, Kate. Oh, thank you very much. I could have given you a shamrock to put on. <laughs> yes, I didn't actually... One of the things about uh, life not being completely normal is that, you know, normally I'd be on the tube and you'd probably pass somebody selling shamrocks, but, you know, we don't see anybody anymore, so I haven't seen anyone wearing one this morning either. No, I haven't. I'm in London, so I haven't seen one yet. No, I mean, there's some quite extraordinary things to discuss. Let's kick off first off with Boris Johnson's statement and speech yesterday about Britain's sort of place in the world. Some people this morning are saying that he's been a bit soft with China uh, because he's talking about doing more trade with them. He's talking about doing more uh, uh, investment deals with with the Chinese government. What do you make of that? Well, I think we're doing trade deals and you know, trading with a lot of countries that have pretty bad human rights at the moment. But, of course, China is that little bit even more worse, if you can, if you can yes. say that, because of what's, what, you know, what we find out and what they're doing to their uh, the Muslim people and also to the Tibetans. But, you know, it, it is a very... I can see the difficulty, because if we were just simply to say, right, that's it, we're not going to do any more trade with China, um, we're stopping everything... Well, you know, it would, first of all, cause a lot of job losses in this country, but also if the rest of the, the world is kind of carrying on trading, then we are not going to be able to make much difference. So I think that one of these things has to be, one of these things that really needs to be tackled um, internationally with a lot of countries agreeing they're going to do certain things. And, you know, the European Union is already trading a lot with, with China and even entering into more arrangements. So I think it was a, it, I think he was attempting to have a balanced statement that was going to keep all those people who feel very strongly about China uh, accepting that we were doing something, but actually not going to go far enough for um, many, many people. And, you know, I'm just not quite sure of what we really, the answer is on this, other than that we have to keep protesting about yeah. things that we're doing. But I'm, yeah. I'm not sure we can just, I mean, if, if you look at anything you buy in your shop now, I mean, I've started to look and when there, when there was, when we could buy things like, and, um, you know, so much is made in China. And, you know, maybe if people really feel strongly, they should just say, well, I'm not buying that anymore. Yes. I think that would be helpful, actually, because quite often, I mean, I've noticed that as well lately in supermarkets and things, that they've started labelling up fruits and vegetables and saying where they've come from, which is quite useful information, actually, sometimes, if you, you know, if you want to, to, to make a, 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 you know, a purchase based upon whatever you think of that particular country. But I think most people's worry about China is that it's kind of making this rather slow 
and sometimes not so slow march towards kind of world domination. And I think, you know, we'd be wise to not get too close to them, if you know what I mean. Well, what I'm very disturbed about is the way that we're now universities are just yeah. making huge amounts of money by bringing in literally plane loads of Chinese students. I mean, even in, in Northern Ireland there a few weeks ago, there was a, a, a big outcry because uh, plane loads of, of, of Chinese students arrived right in the middle of the pandemic. Right. And, you know, you, they're, they're harvesting that. And, and I think a lot of those students, when they come, they don't mix. They don't actually change their views. Mm. And they're very much controlled by the Chinese embassy here. Yeah. So I, I, I do think you're right. I would love to see everything that we buy labeled better because, you know, in future, I think we want to buy home-produced mm. food much more than buying things from from the, the rest of the EU or the rest yeah. of the world. I mean, absolutely. I was quite interested as well in Boris's uh, suggestion that he was going to invite uh, both Australia and India, and I think there was one other kind of maybe Japan as well, to the G7 uh, when it's happening down in, um, uh, in, in Newquay later on this year. So that's an interesting kind of development as well, isn't it? Well, that's part of what really we have to be doing now that we've left the, uh, the shrinking little European Union. We've mm. now got to look look east and of course we would already started to do that and there was a lot of um, work going on with uh, more trading arrangements with both Australia hopefully we'll get a proper trade uh, deal with Australia but Malaysia Singapore a lot of India all those countries you know, they are the growing economies and we want to be working with them uh, and and we have that link because of the Commonwealth mm. you know the, the, that, that's where Her Majesty the Queen becomes a really important person because she is kind of revered in all those countries, yes. all those big Asian countries that are doing so well. And we have to now, and I think that's why in the Foreign Office, um, they're making the Commonwealth unit much, much bigger, much more important unit mm. than it ever used to be. When, because everywhere before, they used to just look to the EU. That was, that was where we looked. Everything had to be shifted. And now we can look east and do things that we couldn't have done when we were still a member of the right. EU. Well, the EU are too busy now putting their toys back into the pram after their sort of sulk and uh, and their sort of petulant strop that they had over the vaccine, where they were ridiculously going against even their own medicines organisation to say that the AstraZeneca vaccine uh, wasn't safe. I mean, it makes no sense at all. I can't believe that they're just doing it out of spite, but I think they are. I think I think certainly the, the I think I'm sure the uh, original idea was that, but perhaps they didn't think through that how much their own people were going to be quite angry with some very interesting uh, box pops with people mm. in France who were quite annoyed. And, and you know, it is so ridiculous um, to try and punish, you know, as, as if it's punishing us because they're not going to take uh, have the vaccine. I mean, it is. It's worrying, too, in the sense that even if we're all vaccinated and everybody is feeling quite safe in this country, obviously, if other countries don't go through the same process and get vaccinated, we, you know, there'll probably still be restrictions on travel. And for a lot of people, apart from wanting to get out and shopping normally and seeing people and getting your hair cut, as I desperately mm. need, we we uh, want to be able to go on holidays and go and travel. and that. So, but I think it's, it's a very... It, I think what it's done is made those soft remainers who really didn't want to leave but weren't too unhappy in the end now absolutely right, clear that we it's the right thing to do because just imagine if we'd still been in the EU, it would have been absolutely terrible. No, I know, absolutely right. We would have been in a really bad spot. Um, and we'd have also, what, what would have been worse, would have been, we'd, be, we'd have been at their beck and call. You know, because yeah. can, can you imagine how awful the EU would have been to Britain if we'd had the referendum and people had punted for it and lost it so that we'd had to remain in? I mean, they would never have stopped punishing us. No. And um, can I just remind you, and I'm sure you're fed up with me reminding you, but of course, that's exactly the position that part of the United Kingdom has been left in the sense that Northern Ireland, yes. when change, will have to go along with it. And that's why there is so much opposition to the Northern Ireland Protocol and uh, you know, I'm pleased to say that, you know, behind the scenes, there's lots of talking going on, lots of suggestions about what could happen, because ultimately, I think we are going to have to, you know, take the EU on on this. And, you know, if it's well, they've already threatened to take us to court. 
Well, so be it. Let yeah. them, you know, frankly, if they, you know, what can they do? Well, this is it. I mean, the language... They, they can find they... us a lot of money and we simply don't pay them or take it off what right. they think we're going to pay them over the next few years. Well, exactly right. And I mean, they're not really in a position to push us around anymore. So the language they're using is entirely inappropriate, in my view, um, as if they are sort of, you know, still the bullying kind of, you know, stay-at-home master who doesn't allow uh, his wife out. I, I, I think that some of them haven't quite yet realised that we've actually left. And no. still, you know, they still have that language of the, the, what the EU Commission says the EU Commission will get. Well, you know, tough, because now we've got someone like David Frost who isn't going to put up with that. Um, and, um, you know, I think the British people are solidly behind us now on, on this whole question. And we are going to see other EU countries. I think this the whole AstraZeneca issue and the whole question of vaccination is going to make just that the growth in some of the EU countries that were already being very angry about certain things the EU were doing, perhaps that will make that the strength of their feeling. Yes. Oh, I don't think there's any doubt that they're suffering from major delusions of grandeur. I heard an, a, a EU official uh, in an interview the other day saying, you know, complaining about the fact that Britain hasn't given them any vaccines. We have given you billions of vaccines, they said, right? And I think they said something like 33 billion vaccines have been given to the British people. And it's like, well, you haven't given them. AstraZeneca has given them because AstraZeneca happens to have a factory in Belgium. But it doesn't mean that the EU has actually granted them to us. We didn't have the bureaucracy and the, uh, all the paperwork to go through to actually order it in time mm. to get it the way they have had to do. So it, it's the advantage of being, you know, take, you know, taking back control, being able to make your own decisions, and that's what we were able to do. Well, exactly right. What about uh, what happened yesterday in um, Parliament when David Davis got up, um, a man that you'll know pretty well, um, nobody's quite sure why he did it, but he certainly decided to set the cat amongst the pigeons in Scotland um, by using parliamentary privilege to um, accuse the SNP and Nicola Sturgeon of, of a cover-up, effectively. Well, um, I think, David, if, it, if anyone was going to do this kind of um, parliamentary privilege exposure, mm. it's David Davis, because he's, he's done things before and he's uh, extremely uh, good at that kind of thing. I, I, you know, I, I sound a bit naive, but I genuinely wish I could get my head around the whole Scottish issue. Yeah. Um, I find it very, very difficult. But my instinct, my basic instinct is that, of course, um, you know, I just would love to see this affect the uh, Scottish Nationalist Party vote in the coming elections. Uh, I, I've, I think the Scottish Nationalist Party has been behaved so badly on all sorts of issues and their whole anti, anti-English, anti-British uh, attitude has has really really I think annoyed a lot of people. So if 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 we can if this brings it home more to people, because I think even for a lot of Scottish people it's quite confusing about dates and people are not quite understanding why yes. is it so why is it so dreadful if she knew something on a certain date, you know. So I'm I'm pleased that he's he's got something that is going to make it. I think, yeah, I mean, I think for a lot of people who may not know the ins and outs and the absolute detail of it all, it's it's the optics of it that, that look bad. I mean, Nicola Sturgeon does appear to present herself as the kind of empress of all of Scotland. Um, and she's not really carrying the weight of everybody's support when she does that, because not everybody voted for her. Not everybody wants independence. Not everybody thinks the SNP is the greatest thing since sliced bread. No, and she's had she's had that sort of advantage of being able to do every day a daily COVID report which i think there's no doubt about it the beginning of the whole um, pandemic was something that i suppose scottish people actually liked you know initially that she was coming out every day and speaking and telling things but then um as time goes on you know not only do you get tired of the face but also um the, the way that it seemed certainly to us here that she was always trying to be either ahead of what uh, boris johnson was going to do or doing the opposite of what we were doing. Mm. And I think it began to see that she was, you know, partly using, you know, it probably sounds a bit unfair, but partly using the pandemic as just an opportunity to be able to um, carve her own kind of, uh, as you say, a kind of uh, figurehead person. Yes. Uh, but the elections are coming and, and people, and, and I, I have to say George Galloway, who's, you know, I've known for a long, long time, but people wouldn't always agree with politically. Yes. I think he's, he's been doing a great job about trying to get people to um, work together uh, who are anti the SNP mm. and yes. try and get that vote. And I think that's going to be very, very important. I think so. I think also the new Labour leader up there looks quite smart as well. 
Yes, yes, and he's he's made some good contributions. I mean, we we've missed that, and of course we missed. I think the Conservatives missed when they had to change their leader too. Mm. And, and and I think so. We might be going back to a bit more what would be normal politics in, in Scotland. And then, of course, we're going to have a by-election in... Uh, well, in I was going to ask you about the Hartlepool yeah. situation. It's a bit embarrassing for the Labour Party, and I know it's probably unfair to, to bring the two things together, but a bit embarrassing for them to have a guy called Mike Hill who's had to resign over uh, claims of sexual harassment, given what's been going on this week. Yeah, it, I mean, it is, but, of course, it's been something that's been around even at the last general election. Yes. There were lots of rumours and so on. Uh, but it's going to be interesting because we haven't had a by-election I think it's, uh, some, I read somewhere it's the longest time ever, you know, between Is that right? and, mm. Yes. And uh, so that's going to be very interesting because it's going to be a test of Keir Starmer and uh, the Labour um, Party, whether it's made any difference having a new leader. Mm. And of course, Hartlepool was one of the sort of seats that got he- that held on um, when there was a very um, well-known candidate, Richard Tice was the candidate for the Brexit Party. Yes. And there was a chance of him actually winning that. Mm. But, uh, Mike Hill held on, so I think this time there'll be a bit of a reaction to obviously um, the circumstances. Although we can't really talk about that because it's a legal yes. legal situation, but mm. I think that'll be that, that'll be a day that the media will be quite interested in what's happening. Yes, I mean I've heard Labour Party members saying it's going to be difficult for them to hold the seat on the basis that they can't go and campaign. But nobody can go and campaign, so I don't see how that's necessarily going to be a problem for them. But they may use that, I suppose, as an excuse. Suppose they'll have it on probably have it on the same day as the council elections in in uh, in May when I think people are going to be allowed eventually to go out and deliver leaflets to yeah. people. Well, I would have thought by May we should be in pretty good shape, shouldn't we? Sorry, I would have thought by May we should be able to uh, manage to get people to actually knock on other people's doors. I, I still I still just find the uh, relaxing far 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 too slow. Yeah. Uh, it's 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 just so depressing that we don't and certainly Northern Ireland people are very angry this morning because there's no dates or data being given to anything about uh, shops opening and and you know retail generally so it's not an even picture across the UK no and finally Kate what's your take on this whole conversation about women and safety on the streets because obviously that's been the big subject of the weekend uh, and all the way through this week as well, after what happened, uh, dreadful uh, event on Clapham Common, and then and then the demonstration at the weekend. What's your take on the way this is kind of unfurling, if you like? Well, it was a terrible, terrible, tragic murder and uh, something terrible for the family. But I'm not sure that the events of Saturday, um, you know, have have. I think they've kind of diverted almost from the sadness and and the original ideas of the vigil, which mm. was to commemorate. Um, her and, mm. and, and I, I, um, I, I, there's no doubt about it. Uh, when you look at the pictures, that there were people who came along specifically, um, who go to kind of almost every demonstration with the purpose of, of starting uh, problems. But mm. you know, I, I've lived in I lived in London, you know, for a long time, 30, 40 years, and you know, you you were you kind of were new to be careful and to think about things like that but you know I think what we've got to not have and I I find it very silly some of the people who've been coming out talking about you know I mean hopefully just not meaning it but saying it as a sort of way of getting a headline about curfews for men at six o'clock and all that nonsense Mm. I mean there are bad people um, and they can be bad women or they can be bad men in this particular case um, you know I'm not sure what else um, any any of the um, uh, institutions could have done. I mean, in terms of stopping that murder, um, you know, lighting in the streets, more more lighting that that he's, um, I think the government's been talking about. I'm not sure. That well, we means. hear a lot about lighting, but I was talking to a lot of people yesterday on the show who said to me that one of the biggest problems in their area, and it happens, it seems, all over the country, is they switch the street lights off at midnight in a lot of places. Now, that yeah. seems to me to be something that you could very easily fix and just leave them on. Yes, yes, I suppose that does happen in some places. I mean, I remember years and years ago, living in the country, walking home from the bus late at night up a country road, mm. and there weren't any lights. And frankly, when they did put lights in eventually, years later, you were walking up and you actually felt people could be behind the ditch looking at you mm. and seeing you, whereas when it was all dark, you felt <laughs> almost... <laughs> Strangely like, safe, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's very, very sad, and I think we, 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 there's no doubt about it that many women will be feeling more fearful, and I, I hope... That, that doesn't stop them 
actually saying you know they have a right to be out they have a right to be living a normal life yeah. and we can't let this kind of thing change our way of living no i mean i wonder as well whether it's part of this whole kind of culture of fear that we've been living under uh, for the best part of the last year that people have been telling us not to go out uh, telling us not to kind of mingle with one another you know and this is almost an extra an extra kind of arm of that in a way Yes, I mean, the lockdown has, I think, changed people's behaviour. It'd be really interesting when we all go back again. Will there ever be, a, you know, in the near future, a near normal again? Um, I, I, I think what's worrying me is that people have accepted so much of of the rules. You know, mm. in a way, they've, they've gone along with the, the, the restrictions without necessarily thinking why is this necessary right. i mean there was there was a necessity at one stage i think for probably the lockdown but you know now that people people are being vaccinated and, and um everything has has gone down in terms of numbers of people getting getting covid and, the, and numbers of people in hospital why are we not starting to really open up um, and people are just going to get very fed up and more importantly for a lot of people, it's is going to be the end of their small business. Yes. I'm afraid it is. You're absolutely right, as ever, Kate. Thank you very much indeed for your time and for those opinions. Baroness Hoey of Lyle Hill and Rathlin uh, talking to us there from uh, from London today. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So it was just over a week ago, wasn't it, that Piers Morgan stormed off the set of Good Morning Britain uh, and then later that day uh, decided that he was going to quit as a result of being asked to apologise for something that he'd said about Meghan Markle by the chiefs at ITV. Now, this morning, uh, as if by magic and as if by uh, illustration of how without Piers Morgan they can't really do what they used to do, Patsy Palmer from EastEnders appeared uh, on Good Morning Britain with Ben Shepherd and Susanna Reid. And here's what happened have addict to wellness guru on the bottom of the screen well I'm you know huge my apologies for that my that i had years ago that were talked about by me many many years ago right. and it's over so i'm so I'm sorry about that patsy a huge apologies we didn't we, really that, that was it wasn't our intention to upset you uh wow. that's obviously a quote from patsy's book and as she's talked about in the past um certainly wasn't our intention well, it might not have been Ben Shepherd's intention to upset Patsy Palmer, but what that illustrates to me is how they cannot operate as a kind of cheeky, tabloid, edgy television show without Piers Morgan. Because here's what Piers Morgan would have done. Piers Morgan would have said, Patsy, look, that's ridiculous. I'm not having that. He would have pointed at the screen. He would have said, get that off there now. They described her as an addict, which he didn't like. And he would say, who's responsible for that? And whether it would be something serious or not, he would have somehow got the situation back. He would have said... Do not ever put anything like that up on the screen ever again when we're interviewing very important people like Patsy Palmer, who's gone off to America to make a new life for herself. And he would have rescued the situation and she would have given them the interview. Instead of which, she did, in her words, a Piers Morgan and walked off. Let's talk now uh, to Mark Bukowski, a brand of PR guru, uh, to tell us exactly uh, what he makes of it all. Mark, a very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. Well, they, um, they say a week is a long time in politics. It's quite a long time in television these days, isn't it? Well, it, well, it is. Um, and I guess that was always going to be the danger. Once um, someone as prominent and prolific and as influential as uh, Piers Morgan uh, demonstrates what can be done to his own channel by walking off, excuse me. Now, that's possibly the best interruption I think I've ever heard. Is this for your walking off into some kind of sunset scenario? Yeah, no, that's uh, Badgers and Streams. It's the... Uh, <laughs> It's uh, John Barry. Very good. Um, I'm not sure I've got the rights to use it, but I do, Mike. So, um, no, so once you've, once you've drawn a line in the sand such as that, you know, you, you've neutered the whole impact of the programme. Arguably, Piers Morgan has neutered his impact as well, because I think a lot of people who face difficult questions from Piers Morgan will also do a Piers Morgan to him. Right. Um, but, you know, people are very, very sensitive about their past, particularly in the public life, when they've gone through huge amounts of attention um, and critique from newspapers and from the crowd, from what they've done. And I, I guess it's been a very difficult journey um, for Patsy Palmer over the years. And to have that thrust up, which is an unfortunate soundbite, and you do get terrible captions uh, thrown up on, yes. on TV shows. Um, so the junior caption writer, whoever wrote or conceived that caption, his head will, or her head will roll today. Um, but it just shows 
the struggle Good Morning Britain's going to have with that peers. Yeah, but I think that's it because my point really, my point really is that he he had been sitting there. He would have done what I've just suggested he would have done, I'm sure, because I know him pretty well, as you do. And he would have rescued the situation because with his skill at being an editor of a tabloid newspaper, which is, as you know, comes with its own difficulties. I mean, Richard Maidley tells a great story uh, of when he and his wife were out in California Piers got sent a set of pictures of the two of them and, he, and, and it wasn't, they weren't particularly flattering. And in the end, Piers bought the pictures um, and didn't, they didn't agree to do an interview, but he bought the pictures and dumped them anyway, just didn't use them. You know, so you've got to sort of have that kind of very um, skillful ability, you know, to, to, to publicise things about people they don't like, but still keep them on site. Yeah, live TV is really tough and sort of editing on the go is, is a real skill. And also, you know, having instructions barked in your ear from the gallery. Mm. Um, very few people can manage um, live TV well, but certainly your point is well made. I think if he had seen that caption, if he'd seen it in advance, he would have clearly would have said, look, we're asking for trouble. Yeah. Um, ironically, obviously, if he didn't, if he was still on the programme, he wouldn't have walked out and there wouldn't be an excuse for Patsy Palmer to walk. But it's given an opportunity for many of those sort of people who find difficult questions difficult captions, um, being pitched against somebody else in the studio, an opportunity to put down the mic and the earpiece and mm. walk out. Yeah, which but interestingly enough, I mean, you say that some people may now do that to peers. I'm not sure they will because it's quite a hard thing to do to somebody as big as he is, whereas you can do it to Ben Shepherd and nobody really gives us stuff. No, I think a politician is definitely going to take the opportunity if the questions and, and, and the inquisition is, is too great for them. Um, I think a lot of people would have liked to um, find themselves in a situation where they can walk um, from interviews. We, we, we've seen it not too often, frankly. Mm. So you're right. It is when you're when you're frozen in the, in the confines of a studio, you might think you want to do that, but it's incredibly difficult to have the courage um, you, you know, to, to do that. Somehow you're just sort of trapped by the lights of a camera, mm. uh, and you have to carry on. And, and you know, regardless. And I, I don't think it's particularly professional either for any politicians to to, to do that. They've got, to, they've got to face a question and have an answer mm. for it. And if they're not well prepared to be able to deal with that answer, you know, more fool yeah. them. And also, um, I think I think we all now know there was an awful lot more to Piers storming off the set of GMB than just uh, having a, a row with Alex Beresford, because there was clearly an awful lot more going on in the background given that he'd had to make his previous statement, which was obviously, you know, he was asked to do, you know, about sort of clarifying the whole mental health thing. So, I mean, it wasn't just a one-off. It wasn't just he got he got fed up with the way somebody was talking to him. I mean, it was a kind of culmination of well, a lot of the, things. The, the rumour is he was possibly set up, that he wasn't going to budge on his point of view. Right. Um, Brett Browson is obviously, you know, very, um, you know, he's seasoned in, in this argument. He has a lot of fans on the programme. And, and I guess... Peers could see what was coming in front of him when you know there was that very passionate response to to Peers' line of questioning. Mm. So I, I would have felt that he that was possibly and continuing frustration, you know, getting up that early in the morning, you know, putting that amount of energy in. Um, it's a it's a very difficult gig mm. to do breakfast, um, and particularly you know wanting to be prepared in the way that Piers Morgan would professionally prepare himself. I don't think he needs a team of researchers. No. Do a lot of us on the hoof, self editing. You know, he's a talent. You know, love him or loathe him, he's marmite. He's yeah. a talent. And um, well, he's also he's also a box office. They've lost half a million viewers since he left. So well, I mean, I the question the question has to be asked. You know, does GMB survive it? Doesn't it? I think that's going to have to think very, very carefully about how it moves forward and who is going to take it because also it affects Susanna. There mm. was a fantastic relationship between Piers and Susanna, and she must be pretty unnerved and possibly, you know, she I would might... think so, yeah. Yeah, so I think who's going to follow? It's always difficult. In footballing terms, I always, I always thought David Moyes got handed a pretty, um, you know, muddy stick at the end of the day because you know inherited you know an ailing team yeah that you know sort of handed him um you know the succession is sometimes very difficult for the people filling in the boots because you're always going to be compared yeah like, well that's why i think that's why i think they're gonna have a tough job aren't yeah they? well that's why i think they're going to end up eventually having to have a conversation about changing the format and not trying to replace peers because he's not really replaceable with susanna and doing something completely different well, maybe they may revert to a softer edge that they have with um, 
um, the opposition on BBC Breakfast. You know, obviously there's going to be more promotion coming out of COVID. There's going to be a lot more. Um, there'll be a different set of stories to to to, to pull together, um, different types of interview. So you know, they possibly uh, as we as we finally shake this off, people want a different type of program to wake up to in the morning. Yeah. That is well, you know what? I mean, here's here's one for you, and you may not think this is quite as outlandish as it as it might sound. Why don't you just put Holly and and, and Philip Schofield in there? <laughs> Well, I mean, it isn't that all under scrutiny at the moment. If you read the headlines about, you know, the unease that there is with Holly, with her agents and her contract, I mean, there's there's another story going down there. Well, no, I, mean, I think I think I I'd put money uh, on the fact that it's going to be more representative of the times, um, possibly um, a, a, a a a a BAME host. Um, so it gives an opportunity for. Um, Good morning, Britain, to virtue signal, like most broadcasters are doing at the moment. Indeed. I've got a message for you from Kevin O'Sullivan, by the way. He's a phone violation by Mark Bukowski on uh, on my show. So uh, you can yeah, consider yeah. yourself yellow carded uh, by I'm Kevin. Kevin is up this early. That's <laughs> <laughs> very harsh. Very harsh indeed. Don't give away secrets. Mark, great to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Mark Bukowski there, uh, brand and PR guru, on the problems that they're having at uh, GMB because, of course, they're going to be suffering massively since Piers Morgan left because they don't know how to do what he did. And they haven't got anybody there that knows how to do what he did. And I think they're in quite a bit of trouble. Half a million viewers later. Um, we're going to get them all over here soon. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We talk often on this show about cyclists and how uh, the cycling lanes that have been put together in various parts of the country have wreaked absolute and utter havoc uh, with motorists and uh, many of the motorists that we speak to on a regular basis are not too happy about it. Cyclists, of course, say that they have the right to coexist and that everything is fine in the garden and it's better to ride a bike and it's safer and it's more secure and it's uh, more healthy and all the rest of it. But there's something else going on in this country now. We're going to talk to Nick Freeman, criminal defence lawyer, author and commentator, also known as Mr Loophole, because what he's about to tell us about e-scooters uh, should be very frightening to you. And I want you to hear it right now. Nick, a very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. I was reading a piece in The Times this week, which was quite horrifying to me, where there's talk of something like 30,000 scooters, e-scooters being added to the busy roads that we already have to share with cyclists. I mean, I can't imagine who has come up with this ridiculous idea. Well, the thinking behind it, obviously, is we don't want to rely on public transport. And as you've indicated, this is, on the face of it, a, a healthy, environmentally friendly way to travel. Mm. And they don't take up much road space. But there are so many problems with this particular thing. I mean, if one just considers the bikes themselves, the e-scooters, at the moment, you can't, you can lawfully own a private e-scooter, but you can't use it on a road. So we're concerned here with these rental e-scooters that the government is rolling out. And they're planned over the next 12 months to increase um, the rollout by about 75%. They're already in about 40 cities. Um, So if one just considers the e-scooters, in my view, that they're dangerous per se, for example, um, there's a single brake. The wheels are too small. Um, we know our roads are in a terrible state. Mm. Um, you don't have to wear a helmet. 
Uh, they're going to sneak up quietly between vehicles, etc., etc. You can't hear them. You can't really see them. Can't hear them, and they're, they're going to. I mean, they're limited to fifteen and a half miles an hour, but it's very easy to tamper with that. Um, so they, they're going to cause massive problems for the motorist, and and we're going to see, without any question, a massive rise in serious injuries and, and worse than that. Uh, and m my main gripe is this. Um, you can't identify the, the rider of an e-scooter. Um, and what we need to have, they're governed by the same road traffic um, legislation that currently exists for cars. So, you know, if you use one and you're drunk, you, you would be um, liable for a period of disqualification. You're open to penalty points, et cetera, et cetera. But what is the point of all that? For example, if, if, if someone is, is drunk or under the influence of drugs and they're driving on the pavement in a precarious manner, causing people to run out of the way, how do you know who that person is? You know, if it's a motorist driving badly, you, you, have, a, you have a registration plate and that's the starter point. And with these scooters, you have nothing. There's no registration number. There's no, at the moment, no tabard. There's no means of identifying that the rider unless you actually physically stop them. And of course, that in itself mm. is dangerous. So the starting point for me is we need to be able to identify every driver, the members of the public need to be able to look and see that person is, is driving dangerously we need to know who it is. Yes. This is a registration number. But, I mean, and it picks off in exactly the same way as cars. Indeed. But and as, as I suggested earlier, though, Nick, the problem partially for me um, is that the roads are already overburdened with lots of different people on lots of different machines. I mean, you see people on these kind of mono uh, uh, monorail types situation, you know, they're standing on either side of a wheel. Uh, yep. You've got people on segways. You've got, you know, I mean, it's literally like a scene from some kind of weird movie sometimes when I'm driving around in London. And they're talking what? about Liverpool, Bristol, Birmingham, North Northampton, Cambridge. I mean, these are not cities uh, which have got loads and loads of road space. No, well, I don't know. I don't. I'm not actually sure what cities have at the moment. I mean, in London, I think they're they're going to be rolled out to 11 of the 33 boroughs. So we're already fighting for space, aren't we? Yeah. Um, and and you know, if, if there was the the road space for these to be limited in a safe cycle lane, and they were confined to that cycle lane, then I, then I can see the value. But, but to mix these with, with large vehicles, um, particularly when they sneak up quickly and silently, mm. we're going to have a lot, a lot of serious injuries on our road. And, you know, until you make the riders responsible, of course, car drivers, they've got a lot of things to look at when, whilst they're driving. Mm. They, they bear responsibility. But, you know, the, the whole purpose of an e-scooter, as far as e-scooter people are concerned, is I'm going to get to the front of the queue. I'm going to get here first. I'm going to nip there. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And they do it with impunity because we've no idea who it is. If you stick some means of registration, knowing who it is on that bike or on their back, then I think things will change. Mm. And they'll know, you know, particularly with all the cameras on the roads, that they've got to they've got to scoot responsibly. And at the moment, there's no incentive apart from their own survival that they need to do that. No, exactly so, right. I mean, we had a story just the other day of a, of a cyclist who went through a red light, hit a, a, a pensioner and killed him, you know. Um, and we've got enough of that going on already. Um, and I know the, the cyclists will all be up in arms saying, what about all the car drivers that cause injuries? Well, yes, but, but I mean, you can see, you tend to be able to see a car coming. Uh, you tend to be able to get out of the way of a car, uh, generally speaking. But an e-scooter, I see some of them uh, herring around town here at about 35 miles an hour. I mean, it's well, quite extraordinary how quick they go. And I've also well, seen two people on the same scooter. Yeah, well, obviously illegal, illegal, 35 miles an hour. I mean top speed of um, e-scooters, the private ones, is up to it. It's, it's faster than that. They go about 50 miles an hour. Right. And, and how, how is anyone going to police um, the rental of e-scooters? Because, you know, if people are going to bring private ones on the road, as they do now, uh, and they're not going to be caught, we, we've no idea. It's, it's an open invitation, isn't it? It's a mm. legal invitation, but it's an open invitation. As far as the cycling story you've just mentioned, I mean, at least with e-scooters, there is road traffic legislation in place if you get them. With cyclists, there is no legislation in place to deal with that. So when you're dealing with a fatality, mm. and unless it's manslaughter, and that will be very hard to establish, you're basically looking at the Offences Against the Persons Act, 1861. Uh, it's wanton and furious cycling. Um, the maximum sentence is two years. So you, know, you mentioned it. We need proper legislation mm. to deal with cyclists so that everyone who shares our limited space has a responsibility so that we ensure it's as safe as it can be. And at the moment, there are massive groups, cyclists, e-scooters, 
who can at the moment cycle in secrecy with with impunity because we just simply don't know who they are. Exactly. And have right. no realistic means of finding out. And just quickly, Nick, because we're out of time more almost. I mean, whose idea was this? I mean, who came up with this? Because nobody, I don't remember, actually mentioned putting this into any kind of legislative uh, piece of piece of work or or, or or talks about it at any kind of hust hustings for an election or anything. Well, one assumes it's come from someone in the government who's um, um, obviously cycle friendly. I, I can see the benefits from a, a, a friendly environment point of view, but you just can't rush these things through without proper consultation. No. You're going to see a massive increase, huge, huge, huge increase in, in relation to serious accidents. Um, and the, they're not giving it the consideration it needs. Yes, on the face of it, if the if the e-scooters are safe and they need bigger wheels, they need proper brakes, they need to be able to indicate properly, et cetera, et cetera. In my view, that people need to wear helmets. They don't have to wear helmets at the moment. But then we need to identify them, as, as I've already stated. Um, and, and we need to consider exactly how we're going to control them. Yes. Um, and, and at the moment, you know, we're rushing stuff through, possibly because of COVID-19. And we're, we're now trying to discourage people from using public transport. So this, on the face of it, looks like a good idea. But it is going to lead to disaster yeah. unless they actually get a grip of the legislation that's needed. Absolutely, Nick. Thanks for talking to us. Nick Freeman there, criminal defence lawyer, author, commentator, also known as Mr Loophole. This is a disaster waiting to happen, ladies and gentlemen, and you should make sure that you make sure that you tell your uh, elected representatives in whichever part of Britain you are in that they cannot do this without due care and attention and certainly without better regulation. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. So it's now time to introduce you to the man otherwise known as the long-haired Viking, uh, Neil Oliver, Pride of Scotland, Neil Oliver, Stirling, Scotland. Uh, and without any postcode or anything, the letters are all reaching him. Neil, a very good morning to you. Uh, good morning, Mike. Well, yeah, I mean, they're, a, they're a great pleasure at the moment. Yeah, I bet they are. I mean, I've seen you putting some of them out on Twitter. People are being very kind of um, creative about the, the, the letters that they send you. Um, and I suppose the good thing about having a, been the subject of a page lead in The Sun uh, it's not actually scandalous. Yeah, it's it's lovely. It, it started it started a while back. Mm. Um, uh, you know, uh, envelopes that were finding their way to me uh, sometimes just with a drawing of me uh, on on Twitter. My my profile pic is right. now is now one of the many pictures <laughs> of me, um, and 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 the, the Royal Mail, God love them, uh, have have been finding me with with every one. I think, uh, and it's just it's such a treat. I love the idea more than anything else. It's the fact that you know to send a tweet or a, or an email is is the stuff of moments, but. This is all evidence of people sitting down to write letters um, and then the envelopes are often painted or, or drawn upon right. very skillfully. They must have taken you know hours maybe to do some of it and then they go put a stamp on, go and post it and and then there's that whole interconnected chain of, of people at the Royal Mail that, that ensure yes. it's delivery to me and I find that very heartwarming indeed. It, it, it really is because when you say put a stamp on and, and post it, actually that's a lot more complex now than it used to be because most of the post offices <laughs> in Britain have been shut down. So I mean it's really I, mean, I, I get put off the idea of sending anything to anyone because it's such a rig Role to go and find a place we can buy some stamps, put the, the stamp on an envelope, or if it's if it's something that has to be weighed, go and find somewhere that actually operates as a mini post office. I know it shows real commitment. I got one yesterday or the day before that said to the rightful king of Scotland, <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it came. So I'm, I'm, I've always planned to end up living in Stirling Castle. So yes. later, must... later today, I might dispatch a lorry full of Faro and Ball paint up there, get right. the place. Uh, Right. Up a bit. Well, I mean, it must make a pleasant change from all the cyber nat abuse you've been suffering over the years. Well, I think you know, it's I think it's uh, it's symptomatic, isn't it? it? It doesn't take any kind of effort to send something hurtful and and cruel and and whatever via uh, mm. via social media, uh, but you, you'd have to be motive you have to be motivated by I think something stronger. You know, which is which is affection. Let's say, uh, you know, to go to the trouble of writing an actual letter and and just going through all the steps that you just outlined there mm. to, to make sure it comes to me. And I, th I think it's a uh, that that aspect of, of human nature is much more likely to be shown up and demonstrated yeah. in something like a, an old fashioned letter than it is uh, via any other means and, of and, communication. And are, the, and are the senders of these messages? General, I mean, obviously they're, they're generally complimentary, but are they all of a diff of, of different uh, sort of your know, ages, different uh, parts of the world? What? Yeah, it's all it's all it's all over. If they're coming in from they're coming in from all all over the place. 
Yeah, um, and it's it's all all sorts of folk. Uh, I suppose you know over the years I've I've done I've done book tours and and whatever, and I've been approached by you know by people that have read my books or have seen me on the television, and it's it's another glimpse of of that same congregation, if you like. Yeah. It's those same folk, all, all ages, you know, men and women, you know, some youngsters obviously are in there in in some of it, and I just uh, I just love it. It's it it re. Uh, rekindles my my faith in human nature yes which we could all do with at the moment i tell you something else that must have rekindled your faith in human nature was yesterday uh, sort of early part of the evening when david davis stood up in the house of commons completely unexpectedly i mean i, I don't know if anybody knew he was going to do this but i certainly didn't and i actually missed it because i was on the phone to somebody at the time by the time i got back onto the parliamentary channel uh, it wasn't there but let's have a quick look at what he said i have it on good authority that there exists from the 6th of February 2018, 6th of February 2018, an exchange of messages between civil servants Judith McKinnon and Barbara Allison, suggesting the First Minister's Chief of Staff is interfering in the complaints process against Alex Salmon. The investigating officer complained, and I quote, Liz interference v bad. I assume that means very bad. If true, this suggests the Chief of Staff had knowledge of the Salmon case in February, not in April, as she has claimed on oath. The First Minister also tied herself to that April date in both parliamentary and legal statements. She was, of course, aware earlier than that. The question is just how aware and how much earlier. I mean, absolutely uh, mind-blowing stuff, Neil, because, I mean, he basically later said that the information that he's got from this uh, whistleblower is um, showing perjury up to criminal conspiracy. For me, it's without a doubt, the most uh, potentially devastating uh, speech I've ever seen delivered inside the Palace of mm -hmm. Westminster. Um, it, you know, it, it, ought to, it ought to have, uh, you know, consequences most severe. Yeah. Uh, and we'll see what actually happens. But I watched, the jungle drums were beating and I, I, I was made aware of that, of, of David Davis being on his feet in, in the in the House of Commons, and I, I caught the second half, and just watched and listened, you know, chin on chest. But I, but then at the same time, it, it can now be said a, a lot of it has been common knowledge uh, uh, here in Scotland. I mean, many of us were, were were talking about exactly this, but you know, obviously it was it was being kept uh, it was being kept under wraps mm. by all sorts of illegal. Uh, techniques that, that, that were meaning that we, it wasn't possible to talk about it publicly without uh, the risk of you know drawing down a, a criminal prosecution upon yourself. Right. So, uh, so it, it was like it, it was with, it was like the relief of uh, having an abscess dealt with. Uh, you know, there was there was that sudden mm. rush of relief, uh, and it, I mean the the smell. You know, it's just a rotten smell mm. in Scotland, and the and the bigger challenge really is you know the abscess maybe has been has been lanced at the moment but the impacted molar is still stuck in the jawbone mm. and has yet to come out has has yet to be removed mm. but as a as a as a television viewer i've never seen anything like that myself no and nicola sturgeon of course characteristically has kind of dismissed what he said but i don't know how much longer she can continue to do that given that now um, as you say the hair is is, uh, is is running as it were because you're quite right that up in Scotland you know she appeared before that committee for eight hours and it all kind of went away because people were just kind of stunned into what could only be some described as some kind of torpor because she spent eight hours saying literally nothing at all and the media kind of moved away from it. I think two days later I checked up on the BBC's Scotland website for news and there was no mention of it at all you know just like as if it had gone and disappeared in the middle of the night and I think for David Davis to make these accusations in Parliament and I understand as well that they haven't done it in Scottish Parliament uh, for, for reasons of no privilege apparently there is no parliamentary privilege in the, in the Scottish Parliament which I didn't actually know so I think somebody surely in Scotland now that there's an election process about to start will surely pick up on it it's it's so difficult to make those sorts of predictions and to draw those sorts of conclusions because, you know, for months, for years now, we've all a lot of us have become exhausted with with prefacing comments with statements like "this must" and "surely it will," mm. because time and again that apparent uh, inevitability has been thwarted, 
And and the First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, is the uncrowned queen of somebody else did that. I didn't know. I forgot. I can't recall. A big boy did it and he ran away. Mm. And that has been uh, the the standard of defence, but it has worked. And there's always been this fallback position also where she has said, it's it's only for the people of Scotland to decide what happens to me. Um, which so far has been a fairly cast iron uh, line of defence right. behind which she has stood, but it, it's absolutely it's absolutely the case. You know, David Davis's uh, speech, his testimony in the Palace of Westminster, lays bare what what we have known up here and, and what we have talked about in extreme frustration for the longest time. You know, something is rotten in the state of Scotland. Um, and but, but whether but whether this is finally the, the beginning of the process of of excising the the cancer will remains to be seen. Mm, it does, but as I say, without anybody's kind of will to do so up there, um, it hasn't happened yet. And it, but I just I'm assuming, and you're right to say that I have no right reason to assume this really. But you would assume that as part of a, a, a an election strategy by the opposition parties, they would bring this up. You Certainly Ruth Davidson will be doing something about it, I'm sure. Well, you'd think so, but as you, as you mentioned there, the p- parliamentary privilege doesn't operate in the Scottish Parliament. Mm. It's that, that, that freedom that, uh, that, that David Davis demonstrated, that, you know, that, that freedom to stand up on his hind legs and, and make that uh, certain that, he, that there would be no... Uh, you know, you, you know that he couldn't be legally silenced for, yes. for so doing. That doesn't that doesn't prevail in Scotland. Uh, and and as he was saying in that speech, you know, the the, the devolution settlement in Scotland fails to del- has failed amongst other things to deliver that to to elected uh, representatives in Scotland. They're not covered by parliamentary privilege, which and uh, you know which won't be which won't be broadly known uh, by most people. Mm. But it's a it's a frightening. It's a frightening reality to, to 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 for people to finally be made aware of. You know, mm. this is this is the Scotland that that people like myself are living in, and uh, that's why I've said all along that you know I as a as a British citizen I, you know I expect I demand protection from people like the Scottish National Party, and and the very idea that uh, that that. That the, the Scottish National Party would pursue independence uh, when we've seen what what the Scottish National Party is like, are like, you know, it's not it's not independence that the SNP want. It's privacy. Yes, their objective is to hive off a part of the Long Island of Britain and shut the door and draw the curtains, so that that that's the kind of operation they run. The kind of operation that is that is to is to go on behind closed doors and drawn curtains, yeah. you know, and the hate crime bill, you know, fits into that pattern. That was a that was a preemptive move to make sure that in the future they'd be able to silence silence criticism, mm. make it that bit harder for people to say I don't like what's happening here, you know. It's the you know the, it's the dodgy uncle saying shush, this is just a secret between you and me, yeah. you know, don't tell anybody about this, right. you know. That's been the, that's been the sinister. Uh, backdrop to the lives of people in Scotland, and and you know fi- finally, you know what what David Davis did yesterday is a step along a necessary road, but you know it's as a as a as a citizen of Britain, I I refuse to be left in the hands of people like this, and you can see now the kind of independent Scotland that they would sculpt if they were given the opportunity and the freedom so mm. to do. And it's a kind of two headed snake in some ways because Ian Blackford yesterday uh, had the cheek to kind of criticise the government's bill, uh, the police bill in London, uh, in the Parliament in Westminster, because he said that it was a terrible infringement on people's freedom of speech. And you kind of go, well, hang on a minute, you guys have just passed a hate crime bill in Scotland, which makes it illegal to basically say stuff. It's unbelievable. It, it's like an it's an out-of-body experience. It's surreal to watch the hate crime bill being nodded through. Mm. And, and let's, I mean, I'll say again, nodded through by, not just by the SNP, but complicit in that were Labour, Lib Dem and the Greens that nodded that through. Mm. The only political party that stood against it were the Conservatives. Yeah. And then in the next breath, to suggest that the legislation that's going through Westminster might be a, a you know might infringe and, and impinge on people's freedom of speech, the temerity and the audacity 
I I don't know. I don't know how anybody's got the nerve to behave in that way, but it, it comes back to a situation that, that you and I have discussed here before. There's no honour. It's a dishonourable state of affairs. I, I mean, I'm well old enough to remember when a sequence of events like this would have inevitably led to wholesale resignations across the board, mm. people would have quietly taken themselves off. You know, it's practically the behaviour where, you know, in the in the old black and white movie, somebody retired to their study with a, a bottle of whiskey and a, a service revolver. Yes. I mean, it's it's a disgraceful state of affairs. And yet I, I, I don't expect resignations from it because, you know, resignations depend upon a, a people taking a stand on principle, but yes. these are not principled people. No, I mean we don't, we've we've long forgotten. I think that the principle of uh, of any politician now resigning in any situation. I mean, almost all of them uh, have to be more or less kind of given um, their their marching orders, which I think is what happened to Mike Hill up in uh, Hartlepool because there's been a long running uh, sexual harassment case, which is going to be heard finally, I think, in May of this year. Um, and he was obviously left with no choice. But but clearly, you know, he's a guy that probably should have resigned a while ago. I mean, the sleaze around around the SNP is it, it would make a you know it would make a billy goat it would turn a billy goat's stomach you know there's the you know the the the, the chief whip in Westminster you know having to stand down amid allegations of having sexually pestered a, a teenager mm. a, a young man yeah you know the, the former finance secretary Derek Mackay you know had to step away from his post because he had been bombarding a 16 a year old boy with texts including calling him cute yeah. he's still on the payroll he's still claiming his expenses yeah uh, you know the, the 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 campaign manager for uh, for Angus Robertson, the, the former uh, leader of the SNP in Westminster. He's uh, up on charges at the moment of, of voyeurism. I mean, the the this, the 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 sleaziness around th these characters, right up at the highest levels uh, within the Scottish National Party. You know, it, it it should lead to condemnation and resignations right across the board, but. Yeah, but but they, also that, I can't that's not how that's not how things actually unfold in Scotland, and it hasn't been the case for years now. And I can't imagine a situation more ridiculous in a way in any other country, apart from perhaps places like you know Saddam Hussein's Iraq, where you know the first minister, who is effectively the head of the Scottish government, um, is married to the guy that's the head of the SNP, and so there's no kind of separation of church and state, if you like. Well. That's, I mean, that's that's almost that's almost a, a, a cosmetic uh, a complication within the SNP. Mm. I mean, the, the fundamental problems were there in what David Davis was outlining last night. There's no, there's it, because of the, uh, the 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 failure of the devolution settlement, the, the 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 inadequacies of the Scotland Act. There's no separation of powers up here. You, you know, the, 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 it's in, it's it's supposed to be central to. Uh, to, to the efficient running of a democratic country, that you have a separation between the executive, the legislature, and the the judiciary, mm. that doesn't prevail in Scotland. You know, the Crown Office was acting in consort with the executive right. of the Scottish government to silence any, uh, to silence and to stymie that that investigation into the Salmond affair. That's 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 deplorable. Yeah. That's inexcusable. And and the fact that that was was somehow in the brickwork of the Scotland Act as put together in the late 1990s, you know, and the and the and the bad smell of of the SNP has found its way up through the cracks. And that's you know that that were in that settlement made there and then, you know, that has to be addressed. The Scotland Act is not fit for purpose and the, and the devolved settlement as it manifests itself in Scotland is not fit for purpose. It really isn't. And, and the problem as well, as you quite rightly pointed out earlier, is that they don't see anybody outside of Scotland as some organisation or, 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 or firm that they answer to. We've asked the Scottish Government for a statement this morning and as yet they still haven't provided one. And I'm sure they're sitting there thinking, why should we provide a statement to this English radio station? That will be their thinking. I would, I would be, I'd be very surprised if their, if their thinking was anything but that. Mm. As I say, I, I don't, I've never really thought that the SNP are about independence. You know, the, the, the cry freedom nonsense. You know, they're not about freedom, freedom of speech or anything else. They're about silencing freedom of speech, and they're not about independence. They're about privacy. They're about give us this bit of this island so that we can close the door, draw the curtains and go about our business mm. and just you be on your way. 
you know, that is the strategy. That's the thinking of the Scottish National Party. And, you know, for 14 years in one form or another, that's the that's the yoke under which, you know, the, the, the people of Scotland have been living. Yeah, they're quite happy to take our money, of course. Well, <laughs> yeah, that goes without saying. Yes. But money without responsibility. Well, listen, it's going to be fascinating to watch and we'll be, I'm sure, covering it uh, all the way through the election as well. Uh, Neil Oliver, our college was TV presenter, King of Scotland, apparently, according to some people. Thank you very much indeed. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Uh, earlier on, we spoke to Neil Oliver uh, and to Kate Hoey as well about the situation uh, that has ar arisen uh, from David Davis, the former Brexit secretary, getting up in the House of Commons last night uh, and basically blowing the gaff uh, on what he regards as some kind of SNP cover-up up in Scotland. We said uh, we wanted to get a statement from the Scottish Government. We have now got that statement. They've uh, given it to us uh, just a few moments ago. Let me read it to you. This is a spokesperson for the Scottish Government. There is nothing in this exchange which contradicts evidence that the First Minister and other Scottish Government witnesses have already provided to the Parliamentary Committee. Assertions of interference in the complaints investigation are wrong and not supported by the evidence. While the Scottish Government cannot reveal the specific context of this exchange, as this may identify staff members and would breach confidentiality, the exchange is not about the complaints that had been submitted by Ms A and Ms B under the harassment procedure. The individual referred to in this exchange did not raise a complaint under the Scottish Government harassment procedure, which the committee inquiry is concerned. And finally, the Scottish Government has taken unprecedented steps to provide the committee with the information it has requested in line with data protection, confidentiality and legal restrictions. Um, I'm not entirely sure what that really means. It doesn't make much sense to me. Uh, and I don't think uh, that will be enough to satisfy David Davis uh, and his investigations uh, with regard to the whistleblower that he mentioned, uh, who he says has provided evidence that suggests there was at the very least perjury and possibly a criminal conspiracy. That's what he said. Now, uh, coming up, we're going to talk about St. Patrick's Day because it is indeed St. Patrick's Day. Normally, you might be going out, having a drink, having a few pints of Guinness. Uh, you might be out celebrating it. You might be out uh, just being nice to people uh, and uh, wandering about the town. But, of course, you can't really do any of that. So let's talk to Mayred uh, Fitzmorris now, Ireland Parents Segment Manager at Twinkle, uh, to find out what it's all about. Mayred, very good uh, afternoon to you. Welcome. Good afternoon, Mike. Uh, nice to meet you. And happy St. And Patrick's Day. Holidays. Yeah, happy St. Patrick's, Patrick's Day. Day I mean, everyone. I've got very happy memories of uh, St. Patrick's Day in New York, where I used to live, which used to be a massive event. You know, it was literally the entire city would kind of shut down for the afternoon. There'd be a huge St. Patrick's Day parade, like they do. And in Chicago, they used to like paint the yeah. river green and all that sort of thing. I mean, it's massive in the States. It's massive all over the world, really, isn't it? really is. It is a global community, um, the Irish community. Um, actually, the very first St. Patrick's Day Parade took place in New York. It didn't take place in Ireland is at all. Right? In, yeah, in 1772. Wow. Um, it was homesick Irish soldiers that decided to march together right. um, on St. Patrick's Day. Um, there's also this year 690 landmarks being lit green in 66 countries around the world. Uh, there's the Leaning Tower of Pisa, the Niagara Falls, Sydney Opera House, the Welcome Sign in Las Vegas, Sky Tower in Auckland, brilliant. Christ the Redeemer statue and London Eye as well. That's brilliant. I, I, I like all that sort of thing. And I mean, because I suppose the reason why it's such a worldwide phenomenon, I guess, is because the Irish diaspora, I suppose, for want of a better word, is everywhere, isn't it? There's people from you can find you can always find an Irish bar in any city in the world. It is one of those common things, all right, when you go abroad um, to find an Irish bear. Um, there's a huge diaspora and everybody really has some kind of link to Ireland, whether they've visited or uh, if they've relatives, um, everybody celebrates today. Exactly right. And how is it celebrated in Ireland and, and, and how will they do it this year because of the restrictions? Well, normally, before these restrictions, we would have had parades in every village, really, um, local community parades. There would have been maybe mass in the morning as well. Um, there would be just celebrations, and sometimes there's Kayleys. This year is completely different. Um, just like last year, we have no parades, no social gatherings um, because of the coronavirus. And we are broadcasting virtual parades on our national uh, TV channel. Um, local radio stations are doing different things as well. And really, it's all about celebrating uh, friends and family abroad and at home in a social distance way, but also in a fun way. No, exactly right. Tell us a bit about St. Patrick. Who was he and when was he around? Well, 
St. Patrick is the patron saint of Ireland and he actually came from the UK. Uh, he was born in the UK and he came to Ireland as a slave. And then he, he left Ireland and he became a priest. And then he came back on a mission to Ireland to spread Christianity. And that is where St. Patrick's Day comes from. And we celebrate on the 17th of March because it, it was the day that he died. I see. Um, yeah. Okay. And what year did he die in? It was the 5th century. There's no exact date. Wow. Um, it's somewhere around the 5th century. And so they in those, in those celebrating. I was going to say in those days, I mean, it must have been quite difficult to find people that were make, keeping records of anything. So was there a kind yeah. of a, a story that somebody wrote about him that was unearthed? There would be a lot of folklore around. Folklore is storytelling in Ireland and from the past. Uh, I'm sure the National History Museum in Dublin would have more information on it. Um, you can go onto their website, actually, and they would have a section on St. Patrick's Day right. today. And um, also, there's lots of resources on our own website, Twinkle, um, about the history of St. Patrick's Day that you can explore as well today. In a right. Way. And you're in County Kerry, which is a lovely part of Ireland. I mean, there, there aren't really any not very lovely parts of Ireland. I think it's a beautiful country. It really is. Um, I've been there many times and, and had a great time every single time I went there. In terms of what you can do to celebrate it at home, um, what, what can you do? What are you going to be doing? What am I going to be doing? Well, um, I'm a bit disappointed there's no parade, I'm not going to lie. But um, I'm going to go get some green ice cream, hopefully later, uh, in my local shop. Um, I'm, we're watching Kayleys online and stuff like that. Um, we'll just celebrate together. Might ring a few people that are abroad, that aren't at home, and just to see how they're getting on and, and just tell them that we miss them. And really, it's just whatever we can do, we'll do it. We'll probably put on our own virtual parade here around the house. And yes, yes. that will be good. And play some, some Irish bands, I suppose. You could always uh, break out the U2 uh, and all the rest That's of it. That's right? it, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <Right>. exactly. <laughs> A bit of dancing around the kitchen. <laughs> exactly right, yeah. So there's no particular food stuff that you would sort of say goes along with, our, with, with, with St. Patrick's Day. Well, today here we're having bacon and cabbage. That would be our main one. There's also Irish stew. Yeah. Um, there'd be Dublin coddle as well. Um, but I'd say bacon and cabbage would be the main one. Right, OK. Bacon and cabbage, great stuff. Lovely. Good to talk to you, Mary. Thank you very much indeed. Mary Fitzmaurice there reporting into us from County Kerry, which is a beautiful part of the world. It really is. I do love Ireland. Uh, fabulous place. And, of course, it is St. Patrick's Day. So, I mean, what would you do with St. Patrick's Day if you could? I mean, I suppose you might if you wanted to. Um, have a little Guinness. If the pubs were open. If only the pubs were open. For heaven's sake, but they're not. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Across the UK. Online. On DAB. And on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.